One of the thinly veiled prejudices against LGBTQ people in our society is the argument that many who call themselves Christians use when they set about to argue for biblical marriage as, to po as opposed to, you know, gay marriage. So biblical marriage, huh? Uh, what do we mean exactly by that? The kind that Adam and Eve had without benefit of clergy or legal sanction? Or the kind that Abraham had whereby he had two wives? Or his grandson Jacob who had two wives but also bore children by two slaves? Or perhaps David who had eight wives but took another man's wife as his own? Or his son Solomon? Yes, Solomon who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Biblical marriage indeed. <clears throat> yes, there is, there is one reference in the New Testament to monogamy. Paul's first epistle to Timothy says that a bishop must be the husband of one wife. Now our Mormon friends say that means at least one wife. <laughs> While the Orthodox churches don't allow bishops to be married at all, and the Roman Catholic Church, of course, does not allow bishops or priests to be married. And to be really honest, St. Paul himself was no fan of marriage at all. He didn't think Christians should get married unless they just absolutely could not control themselves without it. It would seem that there is more than a little bit of confusion over what this biblical marriage we hear people talking about really is. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that it is one man, one woman, or that marriage is defined by Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. There's a lot of biblical illiteracy out there, yes, even among biblical literalists, perhaps especially so. There's another little twist on this subject in the story we hear in the Gospel today, when the Sadducees come to Jesus with a conundrum. Now the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, do not believe in the resurrection. So they're posing what they believe is an unsolvable problem to Jesus that will surely prove that there could not be a resurrection. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, they went on to say. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had all married her. Now let's think about that for just a minute. Seven brothers all take this woman for their wife, one after the other. They all die. I think someone should be calling the police. <laughs> but they all die. Then she dies too, not having borne a child by any of them. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? The Sadducees ask Jesus. First of all, the Sadducees are referencing a biblical law that required a man to marry his brother's wife if she had not borne him any children. Yes, even if he was already married to someone else. 
This law was to prevent her from marrying outside the family and thus protect the family's property rights. It's known as leveret marriage. And that word comes from the Latin word levir, which means husband's brother or brother-in-law. Aha, they think they got him, backed into a corner. What could he possibly say that would satisfy them in this instance? She never bore a child from any of them, so surely she will be none of their wives in the resurrection. There really can't be such a thing after all, can there? Jesus, of course, answers them, and in a way that he so often does, by shifting the frame of reference, thinking outside the box, if you will, he essentially says to them, marriage is for this life, not the next. Life beyond the grave will be totally different. There will be no marrying and giving in marriage. This was not, it turns out, so much a discussion about marriage as it was about resurrection and how we deal with things that we do not really know or fully understand. We all wonder, I think, do we not, at some point anyway, what lies beyond this life? We're kind of curious about that. But none of us really knows, nor can we. It's not ours to know in this life. And that in itself should inspire just a little bit of humility in us all. The fact that we do not know what happens after death should make us just a little bit less certain that we really understand even the things we think we know in this life. Now, I like the imaginative speculations of Suzanne Guthrie, who's a, a biblical commentator that I enjoy reading, on what her reality beyond the grave might be like. She writes this, If there is such a thing as a survival or transfer of consciousness after death, I'd like to meet and thank the saints and angels, the watchers and holy ones, the guardians and guides that helped me during my life. I'd like to ask questions, lots of questions, lots and lots of questions. Once I express my gratitude, though, I don't mind forgetting my life on earth, especially all the stupid stuff I've done. Once my higher consciousness moves through that threshold, if that's what happens, I want to gorge on curiosity, go everywhere, see everything, find out all I can, interview other former human beings and non-human beings, explore the universe, inner and outer planes of reality, enter and learn to negotiate multiple dimensions. Mostly, she writes, I long for freedom from the limits of my senses, the furrows not of my brow but of my brain, those patterns of thought that hinder creativity, the ancient grooves inherited through evolution confining possibilities sensed but not seen, the eye itself diminishes and disappears. I want to die, she says, into pure love. I want to burst into a new kind of being, like Jesus from the tomb and beyond the clouds of ascension, out of sight and beyond anything familiar. I want to transform into energy and light. And then she quotes from a Henry Vaughan poem from the 17th century, 
which says, if a star were confined into a tomb, her captive flames must needs burn there. But when the hand that locked her up gives room, she'll shine through all the sphere. I want to be that star, she says. That looking out into a reality beyond our senses is perhaps what Job was hinting at in our first reading today. Those of you who were in our Wednesday Bible study this past week will recognize these words from this past Wednesday's class in our journey through the book of Job. And we all know these words as immortalized in Handel's Messiah, do we not? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. Job, in spite of all his suffering, both from his loss of all this world's goods, his loss not only of houses and lands and property, but of his own physical well-being, and even his ability to make any sense of why all these things might be happening to him. In spite of all of that, he reached down inside and he found something. I guess we would call it faith. That somewhere beyond the realm of human understanding, there exists the one who finally makes all things right. I know that my Redeemer lives. Yes, the music to which Handel set these words is itself unforgettable, but I have to believe it's also the words themselves that speak to something very deep in our human longing, something to see beyond our limited understanding, to know the deeper reality behind and beyond even our most finely tuned senses and intuitions. Jesus' discussion about marriage was just one example of that, but an important one, underscoring how limited our understanding is of human sexuality and relationships, of human nature itself. In another place, Paul says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I think in these words today, we are all being invited to set aside our certainties about life and love and to see them for what they are, little hints, intimations of a larger, deeper reality that exceeds our capacity for understanding within the limitations of our senses, our intuitions, and yes, even the entire range of our imagination. And that, the, and that is the love to which, and that the love to which they point is a boundless love, which is the very essence of God, to which we will all finally return. So may God help us all to live more fully into that each and every day. Amen.